You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, we are starting a new series today, a brief series. We're uh, actually two weeks from Easter this week, and then next week, and then the following week is Easter. So we're doing a series, a quick series called Prelude to Easter. And the goal of this series is to get our hearts ready for Resurrection Sunday, for Easter Sunday. So this uh, series is to get our hearts ready for the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to be talking uh, today and next week about the, some of the key events that led up to uh, Jesus' uh, resurrection and what happened before he was resurrected. Next Sunday, we'll be taking communion corporately uh, and getting ready for Easter. And today, we're going to begin by one of the key scenes that happened right before Jesus uh, went to the cross, and that is the story of Gethsemane. Uh, and it's found in all the Gospels. Uh, it's found in Matthew. It's found in Mark. It's found in Luke. And it's found in John. We're going to look at Mark's Gospel today. And Mark gives uh, a description of what happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested by the authorities. And uh, Mark's gospel was written by, of course, Mark. And most people think, many scholars believe that Mark was uh, influenced by Peter. He actually wrote down Peter's story. So Peter had a vantage point, a close vantage point of seeing what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark uh, was able to record and capture what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some people believe that Mark was that, uh, in the story, it says that this uh, young man was there in the garden when they arrested Jesus, and, uh, and he was there, and they, the soldiers went to grab this young man, and his garment came loose, and he ran off naked back into Jerusalem. A lot of people believe that that was Mark himself. That was his, his story, what happened to him. He was actually in the garden when Jesus was arrested, and he was that little boy that they took the, uh, they grabbed the coat, and he ran off without any apparel. So, but it's an interesting story. Let's look at Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. They went to the place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch for me one hour? Watch and pray that you will not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayal. Now, now, the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, we don't know exactly where it is. If you go to Jerusalem, some of you are going to Israel with, uh, with Bashor in, in February of 2024. But when you go to uh, Israel, there's a, uh, on one side of the uh, east side of the city of Jerusalem, there's a valley called the Kidron Valley. 
And the Kidron Valley goes uh, up to a, a little mountain called the Mount of Olives. And on the, the periphery of that Mount of Olives was a garden. Now, there's still a garden there. And when I went to Israel a couple years ago, uh, I got to go in that garden and spent, you know, some time praying uh, under those ancient olive trees. They're probably not the same olive trees that were there when Jesus was there. But uh, I got to sit in that garden and pray for about a half an hour and just contemplate what it must have been like for Jesus that night as he was praying before he was arrested. And uh, the Last Supper just occurred, and, and Jesus, after the Last Supper, uh, said to his disciples, you know, let's go to the garden. And the Bible says in Luke and also in John that Jesus often went to this garden with his disciples. This was a place he frequented very often. So he went there uh, quite a bit. And so this was a favorite place of Jesus to go with his disciples and to pray. And we know that Jesus had a habit of praying. He spent a lot of time with his heavenly father praying. And so here's what I want to, I want us to look at some practical things in this story that will help us and help us to understand a little bit more about what Jesus was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. First of all, I think there's an important lesson in this story that Jesus prayed before his greatest challenge in life. Jesus prayed before his greatest challenge in life. Uh, when Jesus was facing the cross, when he was facing this big, big moment, this mega moment in his life, the Bible says that Jesus retreated to a private place and he prayed. So he prayed before the biggest moment in his life. I think a lot of times we pray in our worst moment. I think when we think about our life, when things aren't, start falling apart and, you know, things aren't going good at work and the kids are a mess and maybe the finances are a mess and maybe the business is in trouble or maybe we got a bad report from the doctor, that's when we start praying. We start praying. And there's nothing wrong with praying when you're in trouble. The Bible says in the book of James that if you're in trouble, you should pray. But I think Jesus teaches us a better lesson here. He teaches us that it's better to pray before the storm than to pray in the storm. And I think one of the things that we need to be thinking about as a church and as we need to be thinking about our walk with the Lord in these times in America, I think we need to be people that pray before the storm begins. We need to be prayed up and ready and full of the Spirit before we face our biggest challenges in life. I used to live in Florida and... Uh, when I lived in Florida, one of the things that I discovered about Florida is that Florida is just, you know, hurricanes is a big deal in Florida in the fall. So I moved to Pensacola, Florida in March, and then I think it was uh, in August or so we had a big hurricane. I'd never been in a hurricane before. Delaware had had some hurricanes, you know, in its history. But as a child growing up, I never experienced a hurricane. And what I saw happen in Florida is that every time there was a hurricane, and there was plenty of them, Every time there was a hurricane, people would board up their houses when they heard about the storm coming. And they would board up their houses, get their houses all secure before the hurricane hit. They were ready before the hurricane hit. And there was nobody that was in uh, Florida that when the hurricane was going on and when it hit the city, that they were out there with plywood in the middle of the storm trying to secure their windows and try to secure their house. They did it before the storm hit. Now, what I think the Lord is saying to us this morning is wise believers are people that are prayed up their prayer life is really fervent 
before trouble comes. And I see it all the time. People, you know, when they get into that hard time, all, the, all of a sudden they become people of great prayer. And I think that Jesus teaches us that it's better to pray before the storm than to pray during the storm. I'd like for you to say that with me. It's better to pray before the storm than during the storm. Now, you want to pray in the storm, of course, but you want to be prayed up before the storm hits. Karen and I went to, uh, we were been off a couple weeks. Some of you know we haven't been around for a couple weeks and. So we went, uh, the first week we were off, we went to Lancaster, which is the place where old people in Sussex County go to vacation. <laughs> I used to make fun of my parents, you know, going to Lancaster, going to Lancaster, going to Lancaster. I'm like, I'm not going to Lancaster. Now I'm an old person. I go to Lancaster, you know, <laughs> go there and eat shoe fly pie and, and watch the uh, Amish, you know, and the buggies, you know, that's what we did for a couple days. We had a great time, ate a bunch of food and saw some great shows. It was a really fun time. But, you know, when we were going up, we had several toll booths that we had to hit uh, on the way up, you know, going up 113 Dover, and then there's a couple other places around Newark where you get toll booths that you got to pay for. And Karen was the passenger and she anticipated when the, all the toll booths were coming and that you could see the signs and she would get the money out put it in her lap and have it ready before we got to the toll booth and you know you get to the toll booth and those really happy pleasant people in the toll booth you give them their money and uh, so you know i think we have the tendency is to wait until we get to the toll booth to get our money out Spiritually, we just like, you know, we're good. We're all busy. We're watching Netflix and all that. Nothing wrong with watching Netflix. Our lives are all busy. We're kind of doing our thing. We're having a good time. And, you know, life is kind of clipping along. And we're not praying much. We're not seeking the Lord much. We're not really praying much. But the Bible says that we should pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Always be praying. Pray when you're in the car. Pray when you're walking down the hallway. Pray. Be a person that's constantly in prayer. Be filled with the Spirit so you're ready when the storm comes. You want to be ready for that and, and uh, anticipating that. And, and Jesus had a place to pray. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. I think you need to have a place to pray. You need to have a time to pray. And you need to have a plan to pray. A place to pray. You know, is there a place in your house? Do you have a certain chair? That's, that chair is where you pray. I have a road that I walk down. I, ha I pray when I'm walking, and so I have a road. When I'm walking on a certain road, that's when I'm praying. So have a place, have a time to pray, and have a pattern to pray. If you don't know how to pray, one of the things we teach in our Next Steps uh, program here at Bayshore is the Acts Acrostic. The A stands for adoration. You begin by adoring the Lord. The C stands for confession, where you confess your sins. And, you know, I confess sins like, you know, pretending to be asleep on the couch when Karen was un, uh, unloading the dishwasher, things like that. <laughs> and then you go to T, which is thanksgiving. You thank the Lord. The Bible says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And then the S stands for supplication, which means to seek the Lord for others. I pray for my grandkids. When I get to the S, I pray for Nixon and Nora, and I pray for, for Jack and Willow, and I pray for my sons, Tim and Joel, and I pray for their wives, and I pray for Karen, and I pray for my dad that's older, and I, I pray, I, I have supplication. And then I pray for stuff for me, 
things that I need. I say, Lord, help me. I got this big thing coming up and I don't know how I'm going to handle it. I had a, a funeral to do yesterday for somebody that I didn't know and I uh, didn't know what their spiritual condition was and lots of people were there. And I said, Lord, give me wisdom. And he gave me wisdom for that moment. So Acts, adore, see, confess, T, thanksgiving, S, supplication. So in the garden, Jesus prayed before the storm came. Now, the Gethsemane is, is illustrative in and of itself. Gethsemane is a word that means uh, oil press. It's an oil press. So Gethsemane was a place where they grew olive trees, and they would take the olives off the olive trees, and they would put it on an olive press, and they would press the oil out of the olives. So where Jesus is praying is a, pray, is a place where they, they processed olives and made olive oil, and it was a place of pressure. It was a place of pressure. It was a place where they would take those fresh, ripe olives, and the stone would roll over them, and the pressure of that stone would crush the olives, and the oil would come out. So when you think about what Jesus is going through, Jesus is at a place of an enormous time of pressure. And he didn't, he didn't escape the pressure. He didn't try to run from the pressure. But he embraced the pressure. He embraced where he was. He stayed in the garden. And what we have a tendency to do in our life, and I have this tendency in my life as well, when we're under pressure, we want to escape pressure. But I believe that God is a design and his plan for all of us that we shouldn't necessarily escape pressure, but we should embrace pressure because it's in the pressure that God works his greatest work inside of us. And so how do we escape? We escape by, you know, sometimes, you know, by drinking too much. How many times have I talked to people that have had these uh, really, really pressurized times when they are, you know, under pressure and they begin to drink too much? The Bible doesn't say that it's forbidden to drink, but sometimes people get so caught up under the pressure that they drink way too much. One of my favorite movies is Hooser, uh, and, uh, you know, it was a great, great, one of the greatest movies of all time, I think, came out in 1986, and there's a, a, a character in the movie, Shooter, that was the assistant coach, and he had a lot of trouble. He was an alcoholic, and Norman Dale, uh, the coach, invited Shooter to be the assistant coach, and he was doing really good until the pressure of the season got on him. And he was worried about winning, and he had anxiety issues, and the pressure caused him to escape the pressure and to go to alcoholism. So you have to ask yourself the question, when I'm under pressure, what do I do? What do I do? Jesus stayed in the time of pressure. He stayed in the garden, and we need to stay in the place of pressure God puts us. Sometimes it's a marriage. We want to get out of a marriage, and it's just, it's just, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. And if there's abuse and bad things going on and infidelity and all that, I mean, there's definitely uh, conversations to be had about, is that a healthy place to be? But sometimes we just want out because it's just pressure. And sometimes God wants us to stay in the pressure. We just got done a marriage uh, conference here yesterday, the uh, OX marriage conference, and couple after couple shared about how they stayed together through the pressure they were in and how God transformed their life as they stayed together, invited Jesus into their work and into their marriage. 
So don't escape the pressure. When I was a little kid, I used to play, uh, I played Little League Baseball, you know, Pee Wee, and then Minor League, and then Major League, and I, I was, I loved to play baseball, but I was, I was not good at the bat. I was afraid when I got up to the, to the plate, and my big issue with batting in Little League Baseball was, was getting hit by the ball, and uh, I'd seen some kids beamed, and I thought, man, I don't want to go through that, you know, and I would come up to bat. And they would have the batter's box kind of outlined in chalk. And I would stand on the very edge of the line and could barely reach the, uh, the, the corner of the plate. And, and when the pitch would come, I would step out of the batter's box because I was afraid of getting hit. And the, uh, the umpire would say, son, you're never going to hit the ball unless you stay in the batter's box. You're never going to hit the ball unless you stay in the batter's box. And uh, he said, he's not going to hit you. I said, well, what about that kid they just took off on the ambulance? What about that kid? <laughs> but you've got to stay in the batter's box. Jesus stayed in Gethsemane. He stayed in Gethsemane. When you're under pressure, you want to embrace the pressure. Pressure is designed by God to draw us to him. And so pressure is not, nobody can escape pressure. It's a part of life, and Gethsemane is a part of all of our stories. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 through 11, Paul talks about the pressure he was under. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we felt we had the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So when you're under pressure, don't go to your addiction. When you're under pressure, don't, you know, eat a half a gallon of ice cream. When you're under pressure, let pressure push you on your knees like Jesus and seek your Father for grace and strength. And another thing, the last thing I'd say about this part of Gethsemane, the oil press, it, it represents a place of pressure. The other thing I would say about this is that this was a place where they made olive oil, where they would take the olives and they would crush them and they would get the oil out of them. And I'm not sure if you know this, but in the Old Testament, there was anointing oil that was made for the high priest, special anointing oil, and a hen of that concoction was made of olive oil. A hen is five and, uh, five and a half quarts. And it was made of olive oil. And there's a picture, maybe a picture here, of Jesus becoming our faithful high priest, being anointed with the anointing of the olive oil that the high priest was going to be anointed with, that was anointed with in the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews says that we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. Jesus is a faithful, faithful high priest, a place of pressure. Now, I want to just say this to you before I go on to our, our next point. I just want to say this to you, 
that you are in, some of you are in pressure right now, and the pressure you're under is not, does not mean you're out of God's will. It, you are in God's will. Stay in the batter's box. Let God do his work in you. Let this pressure draw you to prayer where you seek the Lord. I can tell you in my ministry over 40-some years now being here, there's been times of incredible pressure, but the pressure has always been designed by God to put me on my knees so I would trust in the God who has great strength to deliver and help me. And say this with me. God has great strength to help me in the pressure I'm in right now. Now, a couple other things in this story. We could say a whole lot more about that. But uh, here's, here's something interesting about the Garden of Gethsemane. We call it the Garden of of Gethsemane. It was where they grew olive trees. And John, when you read John's story, John's story about the Garden of Gethsemane, he called it a garden. It says in John 18, 1, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley on the other side. There was a garden, and he, ha and, he and his disciples went into it. Now, the garden, you know, uh, when John writes something in his book, it's always with meaning. There's a clue here. He said he went into a garden, and it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And let's think about this. Deja vu. Where did we see a garden in the Bible? Where's the first time you see a garden in the Bible? The Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you see Adam and Eve. They're in the garden, and God says, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, you know, Eve, you know, was uh, deceived by the serpent. Satan uh, had, you know, was there in, in serp serpentine form. And uh, Adam was with her, and he went along with her. And they disobeyed God in a garden. And Jesus is in a garden now, and he's struggling with the will of God. He says, if it's possible, Lord, take this cup from me. If it's possible, take this cup from me. And Jesus is representing in this garden where man originally in a garden disobeyed God and they did the wrong thing and they rebelled against God and they said, I know what you said, God, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Jesus is at, at that same point. He's at a, the same test and he's in a garden and Jesus obeys his heavenly father. And Jesus has obeyed the Lord every place you and I have disobeyed the Lord. Every crossroad we came to when we chose to get angry and say something hurtful to somebody, Jesus was at that same crossroad when they were slapping him in the, in the trial. And he, was, he had been tested in every way. In every place that you and I failed, he was obedient to his Father. And so when I look at Jesus, when I come to Easter, Jesus succeeded where I failed. Jesus succeeded where every place where I missed it, every place where I missed it, Jesus succeeded. Every place where, where I succumbed to my flesh, every time I succumbed to temptation, every time I, I compromised and didn't obey the will of the Lord, at every moment where I failed, Jesus stood in that very same place, in the same garden that I was in, and he said yes to his Father. That's why on, when we put our faith in him and the people that were baptized today, the Bible says in 1 Peter that he gave us his righteousness for our unrighteousness. That I have 
now the righteousness of God because of what Jesus has accomplished. I love, uh, I love what, the, the, what the Bible says. It says, if any man being Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. So when I look at my, I don't know about you, but for me, when I look back on my life, there's some places, there's some moments, there's some conversations, there's some things that if I could go back to that moment, I would do it differently. Here, I hear sometimes people say, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. Well, good for you. I mean, I'd change a whole lot of things. Let me ask you something this morning. Is there some moment in your life that you wish you could go back and not do what you did? If that's you, just raise your hand. If, if it's not you, just point to your neighbor, you know, whatever, you know. But Jesus has been there. He's been in the garden. He's been in the garden. He's been in your garden where you disobeyed the Lord, where you were Adam and Eve. You disobeyed. You were in the garden. You know what to do. And when Jesus was in our garden, he obeyed his heavenly Father. And John's subtle reminder that they went to a garden and Jesus obeyed his Father is, is so incredible. Finally, the last thing. Just got a few moments here. The last thing is, uh, is Jesus was struggling with drinking the cup. He didn't want to drink the cup that the Father was asking him to drink. And his prayer was, Lord, if there's any way not to drink the cup, Lord, help me not have to drink the cup. I grew up, you know, a Methodist we didn't know a lot of Bible as Methodists. We did our best, but we didn't know a lot of Bible. We, you know, but I remember being in MYF, you know, Methodist youth, whatever that is. And we were trying to figure out what we were talking. What, what, what's the cup? What's the cup? One Easter, we're talking about what's the cup. And, you know, we're all like, you know, we're all teenagers and we're you know theologically untrained but we're just guessing it must be this he must be the suffering going to the cross he didn't want to go to the cross and you know it's interesting to me if you know when you think about it jesus saw crucifixions he knew what crucifixion was it's like he had never it wasn't like he'd never seen a crucifixion he lived in the roman empire he walked and he had seen other people crucified he knew exactly what that was going to be but it wasn't it wasn't that it wasn't that he didn't want to go through the pain. I'm sure that wasn't something that he relished. But that wasn't it at all. The Bible is very clear about what the cup is. When you see a word used in the New Testament, always think about how it's been used before. And here's how it's used in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 16 says this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. When I was reading, I read Jeremiah 25 this morning and looked at it, and the context is, is that God is going to send the Babylonians to bring God's wrath and God's judgment 
on the land of Israel, and not only that land, but also Egypt and also the surrounding nations. And he said to Jeremiah, go to the nations and tell them that they're going to have to drink the cup of my wrath. So Jeremiah makes it very clear that this cup represents the wrath of God, the judgment of God. God is a God of justice. God is a holy God. God is a God who is a God of righteousness and justice. And then Isaiah says this, Isaiah 15, 17, Isaiah is talking about the Babylonians have already come and judged the, the nation of Israel. And here's what it says, awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. So when the Babylonians came to judge Israel, judge the southern kingdom, Judah, Isaiah calls it the cup of God's wrath. And then Isaiah 51, 22, this is what the sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger from, stagger from the cup, the goblet of my wrath. You will never drink again. And then I could do Ezekiel. I could do Lamentations, I could do Habakkuk. How about Revelation? A lot of us are interested in Revelation. We don't know what it means, but we like that book. Revelation 14, 9 through 10 says this, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength in the cup of his wrath. There is no question that the cup Jesus was struggling with was the cup of his father's wrath. The cup of his wrath. And when we're talking about wrath, we're talking about the justice of God judging sin. And you say, Pastor Danny, I'm not that bad. I am not that bad. I help out with meals on wheels. I do good things in the community. I'm a good person. I'm not that bad. Yes, you are that bad. When you compare yourselves to the holiness of a great God who made this universe, the holy God who right now in his presence, 24 hours a day are these beautiful creatures that cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I used to know this guy named Ron Cannoli. He was a worship leader and a famous guy, and I got to do a conference with him one time. And Ron Cannoli said when he was growing up in church as a little boy, he was standing next to his mom, and they were singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And he said to his mom, Mama, are you a wretch? Mama, are you a wretch? She said, Ron said, she said, shut up and keep singing, you know. <laughs> but you're a wretch. I'm a wretch. I've raised my fist in the hand of the God who made me and said, I will do my will. I won't do your will. Jesus went in the garden. He said, I'll do your will, Father. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had been in perfect harmony with the God, his Father, throughout all eternity, through all eternity. Jesus, the F Son, and God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit had had community and fellowship. And for the first moment in history, 
Jesus was going to be cut off from the fellowship with his father. And when the darkness was on the cross and the darkness on the cross was on that cross, it was when Jesus was all alone. And it says, it says in the Corinthians, listen to this. It says that God made him who had no sin uh, to be sin for us. And, and I, I looked at that this morning. I didn't know what that meant exactly. But it, what it really means in the Greek, it's the word uh, ginosko, and means that he who did not know what sin was became sin. And Jesus on the cross felt the shame of sin. Jesus on the cross felt the aloneness of sin. And Jesus felt the judgment of his father. And Jesus went to the cross and he drank the judgment and the wrath of God so that you do not have to experience the judgment and wrath of God. But if you do not embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is your cup. This is your cup because everybody that has not put their faith in, this, in Jesus and say, Jesus, you took the wrath of God on the cross for me. You took the judgment of God on the cross for me then there is no other alternative other than us experiencing the wrath of God ourselves. Let me read one verse of Scripture to you if I can find it here. Very interesting verse. It says in 1 Thessalonians, it says, let me read first of all, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin. Say this with me, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Say the righteousness of God right now. Do you know what that means? I didn't know what that means for years, but it means that when I put my faith in Jesus, I have the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that I am just as righteous as God, I have his righteousness. And then one last verse, New Testament verse about the 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Listen to this. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. As we get ready for Easter, as we prepare for Easter, when Jesus was struggling in the garden, when he was struggling with the concept that he would be made sin for us, he said, Father, your will be done, and I'll drink this cup. And when we take communion next week, as we get ready for communion, we're going to be celebrating the wonderful, gracious love of God. Tim Keller says this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believed. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved 
and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dare hope. Would you lift your hand, if you're a believer this morning, would you lift your hands to the Lord? Let the Spirit of the Lord wash over you as you get ready for Easter. Let the Spirit of the Lord wash over you. Everybody at Fenwick Island that's watching right now, let the Spirit of the Lord wash over you. Thank the Lord right now. Your prayer and your thanksgiving this morning is to thank you, Lord, for drinking the cup. Just say that to him. Thank you for drinking the cup. Thank you for taking the wrath of God for me. Thank you for satisfying God's righteous decrees. Jesus, we thank you for drinking the cup. We thank you for taking our judgment. We thank you for drinking the cup of God's wrath that we so deserved. If you're here this morning and you don't have never said, you've never been baptized, you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never come to that place where you've gone public with your faith and you said, I want to be a follower of Jesus and you want to be a follower of Jesus, we're going to help you pray that right now. The Holy Spirit's moving in this auditorium. Just kind of wave your hand right now. I want to receive the Lord. We're not pointing you out. This is between you and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's moving. People are waving their hands. People that the Spirit of the Lord is bringing Jesus into their forefront this morning, letting them see how much he loves them. Let's, let's pray this right, right out loud together, everybody, right now. Let's pray it. Let's pray this. Pray this with me. Jesus, I thank you that you please the Father in every way. I have sinned in my mind, with my mouth, with my hands, with my body. I've sinned against a holy God. And say this out loud, Lord Jesus, I put my faith in you. I know that you died on the cross for my sins. And I invite you to come into my life and to give me eternal life. And say this, I believe that you've been raised from the dead. And now let's say this as corporate followers of Jesus, let's say this out loud. I make you the Lord and the master of my life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore Podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.